Hello, and welcome back to the Asset Allocator podcast, where we get beneath the market with leading allocators. I'm Joseph Wilkins, funds correspondent at Asset Allocator, and joining me today are Richard Philbin, CIO of Investment Solutions at Hawksmoor, and David Thorpe, contributing editor at Asset Allocator. Good morning, and welcome both. Good morning. So, Richard, uh, to kick off, um, as an outsourced CIO, could you talk us through the benefits and drawbacks of this role? Yes, I mean... The the way that the world has changed over the last 15, 20 years, um, that, that advisors are becoming much more important in, in the, the whole process. Uh, we like to think that the the route, the route that we've created is, is basically wealth management 2.0. Um, previously, we would decide what balanced looks like or what cautious looks like or, or how many assets we would include in a portfolio. But advisors are becoming much more important uh, and post- um, RDR and post TCF and, and now consumer duty, um, that advisors want to have greater ownership and greater control and greater insights and oversights when build, when portfolios are being built. So we work with them. We work in partnership with them um, to actually create models that meet their criteria. Because, I mean, around this room, if, if we said define a cautious portfolio or define a balanced portfolio or what is high risk, we would all come up with different answers. Um, and because technology's come along and because there's been a lot of change going going on there and the way that people want their portfolios managed, um, the way that we work makes it a much more joint venture sort of agreement um, because you know, there isn't one perfect way of building portfolios. And, and that's what keeps it very interesting but also very challenging as well. Mm. Yes. And uh, do you find the nature of the role changes as the business you work for, the business unit you work for, gets bigger and its AUM grows? Um, it does. It, it's beneficial to the end client because the, the group purchasing power um, means that we can get the, the, the cheapest access to, to the best funds uh, and on, on the right platforms for the, for the clients, which is always very, very good. Um, but ultimately, we want to keep our little bit of the business very bespoke, very unique and, and meeting the objectives of the end client. Um, so, um, you know, we do have different uh, approaches what uh, one thing that you you'll never hear us say within our our part of the business is we're underweight or we're overweight because we've got different clients requiring different okay. objectives. Sure. Um, you know, we might have a client that says build us ten uh, a portfolio of ten holdings, each of them being ten percent. Um, so that has nothing to do with being benchmarked against the MSCI world, for instance, or or a sixty forty portfolio. Uh, although, although I guess ten at ten percent, you could do a sixty forty. But it, you know, you are making different objectives, and and we can have a different client who wants a completely different objective. They can be benchmarked against uh, CPI, and others can be the IA sectors, and others can be traditional you know, indexes, and so on and so forth. So yeah, we we don't ever say underweight and overweight because you just can't. Um, and yeah, it, it means that when you are building portfolios, they are absolutely bespoke. How has consumer duty shifted this? Consumer duty is is obviously front and centre in in everyone's mind at the moment. We want to make sure that the portfolios that we build are built in a co-manufacturer scenario so that the advisors that we're working with 
um, take on board accountability and responsibility as well. I mean, ultimately, it's, it's our job. It's us that are pressing the buttons with regards to building the portfolios and, and, and monitoring them and maintaining them. Uh, but ultimately, we want to make sure that we are falling in line with all of the consumer duty rules, you know, the do no harm, and, and make sure that um, we are being transparent um, and our fees are, are out there and everyone knows what we do and how we do it. But we also want to provide that specialist bespoke service and, and, and a bespoke service doesn't just mean building a unique portfolio it, it's the the relationship you have with the IFA um, it's, it's how often you're communicating with them it, it's it's providing different services to them um, to, to give them in, insights into what you're doing you know, it's not just about building a portfolio and setting it and forgetting it, it it's working around that as well and, and making sure that you're meeting all of their requirements and they're they are communicating to you what they want you to do and how they want you to do it as well. So it is very much a um, a symbiotic relationship and, and it works you know, very, very well. And it's, but it's something we've been doing for a very long time. Um, so consumer duty, even though it's yet another piece of legislation, it's something that, that makes obvious sense to do as well. Mm. Um, but the bespoke nature of what you do probably makes it easier to be computer du consumer duty compliant excuse me but does it take up more of your time as an individual to demonstrate that you're doing what you're doing you know well th this goes back to your earlier question of you know one of the benefits of, of working for a much bigger group you know th that we do have that centralized compliance function we do have a marketing team we do have a, a very very good operations team that, that, that do all that for us so therefore you know we are working within each of those functions um yeah the portfolio management side is arguably one of the easiest parts of it uh but the reporting and the maintenance and the monitoring of it all is is, is great for the fact that we are part of a bigger group with with greater assets under management and, and a big resource to do that so we can be small yet big and still offer a um a personalised service. Thank you. Thank you, Richard. That's uh, really interesting. Um, on with respect to uh, financial markets, uh, so obviously you'll know that last year the S and P's gains were mostly driven by the Magnificent Seven, um, and many have said that there's a concentration risk uh, in within these seven stocks. Uh, is that something you believe in? Oh, absolutely. Um, <coughs> I the if if you look at the S&P 7, or the S&P 493, mm. or the S&P 500, you get to see very, very big differences in, in terms of market multiples, in terms of market returns, in terms of, of, of risks, of correlations. Um, and it's been a fascinating thing to, to watch. You know? and, and, and in all honesty, it, it's not surprising that most active managers have, have struggled when you've had such a narrow depth narrow breadth, should I say, rather than depth, of, of market mm. uh, participants. And they've all been roughly in the same, same sector as well. It, it, I think it's very interesting as well that you know, people are now talking about the Magnificent Six because they don't want Tesla in it because Tesla's struggling a bit. Mm. You know? And it, it does make building portfolios quite difficult um, because ultimately you, you want to achieve the best possible return for your clients. Um, but you also want to do that in a, a risk-measured, risk-managed, risk-monitored way. Um, and you know, if you've got, arguably, using the S&P, as you've said, 500 stocks to choose from, but only seven have done all the heavy lifting, um, you know, 
I think if you if you went to a client and said I'm building you a diversified portfolio of seven stocks, that they wouldn't think that that was that diversified. Yeah. And yes, you would get the return, um, but how much risk are you taking to get that return? Mm. Um, and yes, you know, hindsight's a wonderful thing, and looking backwards would have been great. But you've also got to look forward, and you've got to think, you know, are these stocks going to be the ones that are going to drive us forward? And yeah, there are some very good reasons why a lot of these companies have done very well. Um, and when we look at you know, the AI boom, for instance, is, is is absolutely incredible. But I do think you know you can't rely one hundred percent on having such a concentrated portfolio mm. getting you a a risk adjusted return that and you'd so be happy with going forward. How are you mitigating this? I guess there's a couple of solutions you could you could go fully passive, or you could go down the market cap chain to you know mid and small caps. Um, how, what are your solutions well, to such an that, issue? That, that's that's one of the great things again about the you know the 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 offering that we have is that you know we work with our clients, um, and fees are very important. So lots of the clients will say to us, you know, build us portfolios, but we we want to fee cap. So therefore, by default, we might have to have X percent in in, in passive offerings, mm. um, and then passive offerings you can look at where the, the most efficient or inefficient markets are to either put money in or take money from, uh, which, which can help with your, your, your total expense um, at the portfolio level. Um, obviously, as, as I intimated, you know, the, the, the returns of the S&P 493 versus the S&P 7 versus the S&P 500 suggest that there are different valuations where you can get you know, some, some returns from um, and different risk-reward characteristics. But ultimately, you, know, you do want to get the, the best performance. Um, I've, I've long argued that you know, if, if you get 10% and the benchmark gets 10%, have you outperformed? And you, know, you say, well, you, you've met the benchmark. But if you've done that with half the amount of volatility, have you outperformed then? Mm-hmm. You know, and, and so, so unfortunately, in, in our wonderful profession... Uh, there's lies, damn lies, and statistics, and, and goalposts that, that can be moved uh, on on a very regular occasion. So you know we've got to make sure that when we're building portfolios, we're building diversity, uh, we're building blending in there, mm. um, but also we're we're ultimately working with the finance advisors that we do to build portfolios that meet their objectives. Um, and as I say, yeah, going back to yeah, the, the the head of this uh, conversation that your version of balanced versus my version of balanced versus a client's version of balanced is, is very, very different. Um, I, 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 there's, a, there's a great line um, in a book that said, um, there are three sides to every story, your side, my side, and the truth. Um, and yeah, ultimately, we want to get the best risk-adjusted returns for clients. We want to adopt value versus growth versus large cap versus small cap we want we want to create that balance because we don't know on a day-by-day basis whether markets are going up or going down Mm. we also don't know what the managers that we're investing in because we are a multi-manager whether they are changing their style or philosophy or approach on a day-by-day basis or whether they've got money coming in or going out and they're having to readjust their portfolios on a daily basis as well so ultimately what we're trying to do is find managers that we believe have the ability to add value in a portfolio across the short, medium, and longer term. I, l- I like to use a you know, footballing analogy that you know, if, if you just looked at footballers, you might look at just the amount of goals they've scored as their metric. But a goalkeeper is a footballer. And goalkeepers, by default, don't score goals. But they do a very, very important part 
in building, yeah, you know, in, in building that team, mm. but also defending when when things are bad. And there's times when you, know, you can have an injury and it can completely change the shape. So you, you've got to create that best eleven for the team, but also um, you've got to play against both the team you're playing against and the other teams in the league, so that you can work your way up the league on a on a week by week basis. So. It's not easy to put the same team out week in, week out, and you know that you know you've got to make some changes according to to different economic circumstances. But you can't put eleven attackers on the pitch, and you can't put eleven goalkeepers on the pitch on a day by day basis mm. because you're just your activity is too much. So that's why, again, going back to you know, the the office of the CIO that that we work with approach is is very useful because. Yes, we're the manager and yes, we're putting the team out there, but we've got a board of directors who are telling us as well what they want us to do mm. with that team. And not everybody wants to have Champions League football. You know what, that's, that's a great footballing analogy to, to explain uh, your, your management uh, strategy. It's not something we often hear on the Asset Allocators podcast, but very welcome. Um, thank you. Um, that's really interesting. Um, how, your uh, philosophy is obviously firmly active management, as as, as far as uh, I can understand. But there is a there is a place for passive. Um, are, are there some regions that you find easier to to choose active management over passive, and some regions that you think are more suited to to passive strategies? Absolutely, but I I, I would like to reiterate that there's um there's a number of time a number of clients that we have that want us to build purely passive portfolios of course. So, so we do yeah and actually you can actively manage passive portfolios yes yeah um yeah you know, not not just in terms of, of of the weights that you apply but you know the the makeup of different indices means that you can create some diversification just mm. just by buying d- different passives now in terms of um efficient markets the US is absolutely the most efficient market um and as we've intimated a number of times that the Magnificent Seven have, have driven the S&P to, to all-time highs um, and done so in a very, very good way. And you know, I know it's the Magnificent Seven today. It was the Fangs not so long ago and you know, the, the, uh, the way we do that. Uh, but I think in, in other markets, you know, uh, the, when you look at the, the bid-offer spreads, uh, when you look at the costs of, of running passive, um, you know, emerging markets, for instance, are very difficult to achieve um, pure um, higher returns from from passives. Uh, you, know, you look at China and, and, and certainly emerging markets with regards to you know, state-owned enterprises. Mm. Many would argue that that state-owned enterprises are not being driven for the same capital gains or capital reasons or capital allocations that that lots of other markets are. And therefore, you know, are, are you by just buying a, a Chinese passive? Putting fifty percent of your assets just basically into the Chinese state, mm. um, and and therefore you know the returns that you know is that much more social capital rather than you know, capital capitalism should we say? Um, smaller as you move down the market cap, passive is much more difficult to achieve. Um, but but generally, you know, large cap tends to work, and and where you've got an index where you haven't got a huge amount of of stocks in there. So even though you know, for instance, we do have a lot of money in. In, in MSCI world, passive. Mm. And there's 1,500, 1,600 stocks in that index. Um, as you get down to you know, 1,000, the number 1,001 and so on and so forth, a, a lot more passive becomes sampled and it becomes stratified and it becomes you know, derivative-based rather than mm. necessarily hold it, holding the stocks themselves. So when you are looking for passive investment, um, 
cost is one thing, but understanding the approach is, is, is very much another. And understanding which index that they're, pa- that they're benchmarked against as well, because not all indices are exactly the same. Mm. Um, and, and that's something that, that, that does need to be mindful of. And as I say, when we're building portfolios for clients, if they come to us and say, build us a portfolio and, and the, the total cost can be no more than Y, we have to then very much use the jigsaw puzzle to say, yeah, how much of our risk budget is one thing, how much of our capital budget is another thing, and how much of our, our cost budget goes into the portfolios. Yeah. So um, it, it's, a, it's a very interesting jigsaw puzzle that, that we have to put together. And, and, you know, but there are, you know, even in, in a 100% active portfolio, you know, if, if a passive fund stacks up on our, our screens, we, you know, we, are, we have no, uh, no reason to not put it in there. For sure, for sure. And do alternative investments ever form part part of this puzzle? Oh, very much so. Um, and specifically, which ones? Well, uh, I, I guess the word alternative is, in, it's is, is a, a very broad brush. Indeed. Um, you know, in, in some some parts, it, it will be, um, uh, let's say, derivative based and, and, and long short equity funds. It, it could be multi asset funds. It could be uh, property funds. Uh, could be renewables, it, and, and a lot of it again depends on the client that we're working with, um, and whether they whether we're running a, a fund for them or whether we're running uh, on platform or how it, how it's being distributed because of um, the what we can and what we can't put in, in into portfolios. Um, there are a number of funds that we buy um, which have done us very very well uh, in the open and closed ended space, um, and in the ETF space as well if, if necessary. Um, but the ETF funds are generally more smart beta rather than the, the, than the passive type approach. So yes, we, we do use alternatives. Um, alternatives tend to be a little bit more expensive, which, which can have some constraints. Um, across the board, we've probably been lightening the load to, to, of our exposure to those because there's much more appeal in the, the fixed income and the equity markets um, and the diversification benefits are, are not as attractive at the moment compared to uh, where, where they have been in the past. Mm. But you know, if, if there's a, a scope for them in, in the portfolios, they can add some some benefits and some diversification and, and, and adds to, to the blending as well. So, yeah. For sure. Thank you very much, Richard. That's uh, really interesting. Um, and finally, uh, Hearst Point had a bit of a restructuring yesterday. Could you uh, tell us a bit more about this? Yeah, well, I mean, Hearst Point is, is our parent group. Um, and, and in reality, there, there's, there's two sleeves to the Hearst Point group. You've got the financial planning uh, business, which is under the Argentis brand predominantly, and then you've got the wealth management side, which is under the, the Hawksmoor brand. Um, in reality, what, what's happened is they, a lot of the, the functions are being centralised, or a number of the functions are being centralised, which makes alignment of interest much much easier for for the, um, you know, the board to understand. Um, you know, we, we've seen some changes uh, in terms of the, you know, the uh, various departments. Uh, from my side of things, it, it's no change whatsoever. Um, but then I, I would kind of, I'm, I'm happy about that, obviously, because uh, yeah, it, it doesn't mean uh, that there's that there's major changes needed where we are. But you know, a lot of the compliance functions are being aligned. A lot of the HR functions are being aligned. A lot of the um, accounting functions are being aligned. It, it's, um, but I mean, and, and we've only seen you know a, a few changes at, at board level. So you know, f- from a personal perspective. Um, it, it's been welcomed. Uh, I think it's a, a an, an obvious thing to do, hmm. um, but yeah, it isn't affecting my day to day job in any way, shape, or form. So it's yeah, business as usual. Exactly. Yeah. Excellent. 
Brilliant. Well, thank you very much um, for joining us today. Um, that was Hawksmoor's Richard Philbin, and uh, I'm Jez Wilkins, uh, correspondent at Asset Allocator. Be sure to tune in to the next edition of the podcast, and we will see you very soon. Thank you very much. Thanks, Joe. When you make decisions for your company, you look for the no-brainers. And if you have a lot of mailing to do, Stamps.com is the ultimate no-brainer. It streamlines your processes to make your business more efficient, which makes you less busy. Mail checks, invoices, legal documents, and everything you need to keep your business running with Stamps.com. Seamlessly connect with every major marketplace and shopping cart. Schedule package pickups and see your cheapest and fastest shipping options from different carriers. With rates up to 89% off USPS and UPS rates. And with the Stamps.com mobile app. You can take care of mailing and shipping wherever you are. Make the same no-brainer decision as over 1 million other businesses with Stamps.com. Sign up with code PROGRAM for a 4-week trial, plus free postage and a free digital scale. No long-term commitments or contracts. That's Stamps.com. Code PROGRAM.